end of the Elizabethan age, which is that end of the 1500s in, in England, we know that the one significant issue that Elizabeth has is she doesn't have a successor, right? She doesn't marry. Uh, she does the whole thing where she says, I am marrying my country. Uh, she kind of uses that to her advantage, but she doesn't have the ability to pass the throne onto someone that she would choose. And in turn, she ends up having to pass the throne on to none other than the Stuarts, who she's already killed a Stuart because she killed Mary, Queen of Scots, who was a Stuart. Um, and so the next in line for the throne is James. And James, when he comes in, makes a speech to Parliament, and his speech sounds something like this. Uh, I am surprised that my ancestors should ever be permitted such an institution to come into existence. I am a stranger and found it here when I arrived so that I am obliged to put up with what I cannot get rid of. So he basically walked into the House of Commons and said, hey, guys, I hate you. Let's do this thing. Sounds fun. The problem, obviously, is that James doesn't want to deal with Parliament. And the Stuarts are really bad at dealing with Parliament. The only Stuart that really kind of changes this arrangement is possibly Charles II, but that's after the English Civil War, and it's very clear at that point that he's kind of got to tread on careful waters because Charles I got, first got beheaded. So th there's a significant issue with dealing with Parliament. James is a absolutist, so I would write down that he is an absolutist and should be considered part of the absolutism era. Absolutism just means that they have total and complete authority and that the, the ruler themselves end up becoming a replication of the government or the nation that they are representing. So someone like Louis XIV and Peter the Great will become incredibly uh, useful examples of absolutism. James I is also a good example. Um, his biggest issue is that he is going to alienate Parliament very quickly. Um, and what the Tudors did is they kind of worked with Parliament. The Stuarts will work against Parliament. And that's not something that they are used to. Remember that the Tudors came in at the end of the War of the Roses and reestablished a relationship with a, a working relationship with Parliament, uh, where you have the House of Commons, you have the House of Lords. The House of Commons at this time is filling with which group of people? Which group is starting to become more powerful and gain more wealth? We talked about them during the religious conflicts because they're an offshoot of Calvinism. The Puritans. And so the Puritans are becoming very wealthy. Many of them are shippers and, and merchants. And remember, they're kind of the, the no-fun squad, right? They're, they're not going out dancing. They're not partying. They're not drinking. They're not doing any of that. They're making money, they're making children, they're making family units, they're making societies, and they're eventually taking over governments. And they're slowly introducing themselves into the House of Commons, and that's going to be a significant issues for, issue for the Stuarts. Um, I would write down this part where he's alienating the Puritans. And uh, the, the other thing that's happening at the same time is the Puritans are starting to form a bigger component of the House of Commons, and they're starting to root themselves in wealth where they can. So they're going to start buying title where they can, uh, whenever it was available. They're also buying land whenever they can, whenever it's available, because they are becoming really relatively wealthy. Now, in England, there's basically two groups. You have old money, which is really re the representation within the House of Lords. The House of Lords is nobles, aristocracy. That's that old landed money. 
Then you have the new money, which is really the Puritans, and they're getting their money through shipping, through merchant wealth, uh, through trade, and working really hard, right? That whole Protestant work ethic concept. And the Puritans are going to kind of follow that Protestant work ethic all the way till you get to the Civil War, the English Civil War. Now, one of the early uh, plots against James was actually Guy Fawkes and the gunpowder plot. So you have this guy who ends up becoming Guy Fawkes, who ends up becoming a kind of a legend in pop history, pop culture, because Guy Fawkes has, uh, I mean, he has a Guy Fawkes day named after him. Um, this is also the same person that Anonymous uses as like the mask. You guys have seen that mask that Anonymous uses when they come on to uh, and make some kind of announcement is they use the mask of Guy Fawkes. Um, but his whole idea was that him, along with his fellow conspirators, were going to just simply hit the reset button. They were going to go to Parliament, uh, load as much gunpowder as they possibly could, and just eliminate government, almost, you know, very anarchy, anarchist version of things. Uh, if, if there were ever an Anabaptist group in um, England, it would look something like this. You're just eliminating everything. Um, this doesn't work, obviously. They find very quickly that the gunpowder plot uh, is happening. And I mean, anyone that's storing massive amounts of gunpowder gun underneath parliament is eventually going to get found out. And that's what happens. Um, and they are just executed in the street relatively quickly. But um, I mean, the English still have a day to celebrate Guy Fox and like burn him in effigy still. Um, and so it's, it's definitely something that shaped their own history uh, in this period. Now, James has some significant issues. He will face large amounts of growing royal debt um, towards the end of the Elizabethan era or the uh, golden age of England. Sorry, uh, you have a, a change in the way that wealth is helping England to the point where the crown is actually getting to very strong overspending under James. Um, one of the things that he was actually spending quite a bit of money on was the commissioning of the King James Bible, which is probably his greatest work. It is his greatest work because it is the most widely read book in human history, is, is his version of the Bible, the King James Bible. Um, the other thing that I would write down is that he believes in the divine right of kings, as all do, uh, most absolutists do. And he will consistently clash with Parliament because he keeps trying to raise money without Parliament's consent. And remember, the Elizabethan bargain was that Parliament and the Crown are working together on things. And so for the Stuarts, he's already kind of undermining that historical relationship um, that they used to have together. Like I said, the commissioning of the King James Bible is very important for him, and that's done in 1611. Um, it is obviously done in, in pretty much a, a version of Old English, uh, but obviously it's also in the vernacular. And for this period, this is not a very Catholic thing to do necessarily, because even though James was definitely pro-Catholic for the most part, he is coming from Scotland. He is Scotland was technically still Catholic at the time, even though you have uh, Knox and the Presbyterians becoming a thing in Scotland as well. Um, he, is, he has a, a very pro-Catholic sympathy, but doing the King James Bible is a bit odd for that because doing something in the vernacular is not something that the Catholics were really doing yet. Um, but the one who comes after James is Charles, and Charles is the one who kind of messes things up because Charles, like James, spent a lot of money. 
He was also considered to be pro, too pro-Catholic by the Puritans, and that's important. So I would write that one down, and that's probably it for this particular slide, um, the, the years that he, wrote, he uh, ruled, as well as the fact that he's considered too pro-Catholic. Um, he doesn't change the Church of England. He still keeps the Church of England as it is. But the biggest issue that Charles will have is going to be Parliament, because he clashes with Parliament so many different times that we have to start making up new names for Parliament. And I'll get there in a second. So Charles is starting to participate in war with these guys. And remember that one of the significant issues that's also going on in Europe at the same time, because the time period that we're dealing with of Charles is 1625 to 1649, what significant war is happening? The Thirty Years' War. So Charles is starting to kind of also participate in the picking off of different groups within the Thirty Years' War to see if he can maximize his own status and England's status where he can. Um, what he will do is he will keep asking Parliament for funds. They keep saying no. And so this relationship gets worse, not better. Parliament and the Puritans specifically uh, will say, okay, listen, Charles, if you want money, sign this. And so they create the English Petition of Right. The English Petition of Right sounds actually a lot like our early declaration, you know, Articles of Confederation and things that we wrote um, in our own country, breaking away from the English, because back then, if you were the king, you could just throw someone in jail without charging them with a crime. And so they asked for no imprisonment without due cause. Um, he also made it, they also tried to make it illegal to raise a tax without Parliament saying it was okay. Um, you weren't allowed to just house soldiers in people's houses. That's what the English did whenever they wanted. They could just say, hey, we need this house. Um, and then soldiers could stay there. Um, and then lastly, mar what is martial law? Were you yeah, you suspend any form of constitution you possibly have or former law that you possibly have, and it becomes military rule. So you just get rid of the other laws and say, nope, martial law, we're going to do it my way. Um, this is when you have things like curfews and things like that. You have to be off the streets by 8 o'clock. If you're not off the streets, then they can arrest you or something like that. So martial law is not all that fun. And what they're saying, and what we look at this list, and we're like, this sounds like basic human rights, right? Well, at that time, the only people that enjoyed anything like this were people under the Magna Carta, which is the nobles. Okay, the nobles had a little bit of rights. Everyone else didn't have much at all. Um, so he go, they, they go, hey, sign this and we'll give you some more taxes. And so Charles signs it and then ignores it and says, bye-bye, I don't need you anymore. So he gets rid of them. The other thing he does is he revives, and you can just highlight this, a medieval tax on shipping. Now, who do you think this specifically affects? It starts with a P and ends with Puritans. So, yes, the Puritans are the ones who are making most of this wealth, and so it's almost a direct targeting of the Puritans, and they're going to start feeling like Charles is targeting their wealth, and he is, because he knows that that's where most of the money is in this period. So, I would uh, make sure to, to kind of have that and also that it's targeting the Puritans. Now, Charles is going to need money again. Now, he keeps 
dismissing parliament every time he doesn't want to deal with them. He's like, all right, we passed the thing I need. I need to get rid of you. Then he calls parliament again after 20 years of not seeing them. And he goes, hey, um, I'm going to need more money. And the reason we call it the short parliament is because the members of parliament, that's what MPs stands for, the members of parliament demand more protection of their own property. And Charles says, never mind, see you later, and dismisses them. So we call that the short parliament because it met for all of three weeks. Then Charles realizes he needs money again. So he calls parliament back. And the next session we call the Long Parliament. And the reason we call it the Long Parliament is because they come back into session in 1640. And then they start passing laws. They're like, well, we're here. Might as well pass some laws. The first law they pass is that they have to be called every three years. That you're not allowed to just not call us anymore. And they also pass within that, that parliament can't be adjourned, that means dismissed, without their own consent. And they're like, Charles comes in, he goes, what's going on? They said, we've passed a law, we need you to sign it. Charles goes, no, no, I don't like that law. And they're like, well, we don't like you very much. And so Charles leaves and goes and gets an army. And he's like, fine, I will dismiss you with an army. They're like, fine, we'll make an army too. And this starts the English Civil War. Sounds petty, but it's basically what happened in a very shortened version. So the Civil War will look a little bit like this. You're going to have these two groups fighting each other, the Royalists versus the Parliamentarians. And we nickname them the Cavaliers on the Royalist side and the roundheads on the parliamentarian side. This group on the left is old money. That money is based in nobility, aristocracy, and land. Old money. The group on the right are your Puritan new money. Now, If you're going to fight a war, new money is a very good thing to have on your side because new money has a lot of actual capital. Um, Old money can definitely work for wars, and, and they traditionally in European history had been how most wars were fought. But new money just has vast more uh, resources at their fingertips. Now, the parliamentarians or the roundheads, they get... They will be led by a man named Oliver Cromwell. Have you written this part down or do I need to wait for a second? Okay. They're going to be led by a a guy named Oliver Cromwell. And Cromwell is incredibly charismatic. Um, He's also a... uh, He's someone that a lot of people in the Puritan community looked up to. And he will basically systemize army. Uh, His new army is called the New Model Army, which they will combine the Protestant work ethic with religion and army and turn it into a a very strong, 
commitment of a basically a bunch of Christian soldiers in a way. So I'm going to show you that when I show you the soldier's catechism here in a second. But here's what Cromwell says, uh, or what they said of Cromwell. And what I would write down about him is just write down Oliver Cromwell, and then write down he is the leader of the new model army. They said... He wore a plain cloth suit, which seemed to have been made by a poor tailor. His shirt was plain and not very clean. And I remember a speck or two of blood upon his collar. His face was swollen and red, his voice sharp and untunable, and his speech full of passion. Um, So this guy is your traditional Puritan charismatic leader. Now here's what they do with the New Model Army. They create a catechism, which is basically a commitment. So when you're kind of going to join the new model army, you get to sign a document that basically is saying that you are a nice, good Christian soldier fighting the evils of the world. This little section right here is from 2 Samuel and Deuteronomy, which basically commit themselves to each other in a very religious way. But remember, Puritans believe in hard work. They believe that hard work done well is pleasing to God. And they basically systemize that idea along with the idea that they're fighting for a good cause, a Christian cause, and turn that into their calling card as soldiers. And so they become a very systemized, orderly, effective army. Whereas the Cavaliers are kind of just all over the place. Like, yeah, they're able to raise armies here and there from different regions, but they're not very consolidative. They don't have a mission. Like, these guys are on a mission, okay? So if you're, if you're talking the, the advantages they have, the, the new model army is significantly more effective than the Cavaliers, okay? Um, now, they will eventually win, and I realize I'm skipping a lot of history because I have to. Um, and the first period for us is going to be called the Commonwealth. This first period, once they've won, is mostly democratic. I, I say the word mostly because it's really not. But they pretended it was. The second section is called the Protectorate. And that's when um, Oliver Cromwell will call himself Lord Protector. And he basically will rule as a military dictator for the second half of this period until his death. But that's the second period called the Protectorate. Now, when they take over, and Parliament's going to win this battle relatively easily, by the time they take over, they, they capture the king. And what they have to do with the king is they have to decide, should the king live or should the king die? And they will eventually decide that the king needs to die. But... Before they do that, Cromwell purges Parliament. So when they take over, House of Commons is now in charge. They are going to be in charge of this Commonwealth. And what he does is what we call Pride's Purge. And so what he, what he goes through is all of Parliament and anyone that is somewhat not on board with the Puritans, he removes them and they eventually get to what we call the Rump Parliament. So the people that were somewhat not in line with the Puritans, were mostly Presbyterian. And so he's getting rid of the moderates. Anyone who's moderate, we're getting rid of you. 
We're just getting together the people that agree with us. Does this sound very democratic? Yeah, very democratic. Now, the first thing that they do when they actually have a rump parliament, that means just the leftovers, is they behead the king. But it's still a really close vote. Why? If you have a, a parliament that is the rump parliament, meaning that everyone in it believes and agrees with each other, and it's still a 68-67 vote to kill the king, why? Uh huh. Yeah, the killing the king is an issue with uh, divine right. That's what DR is going to stand for. The idea that God picked the king is a problem. And even though you're a Puritan that thinks, well, you know, yeah, God picked the king. What, the thing that you, I think, have to understand is that some Puritans still believed that divine right was a real thing. And some Puritans were like, well, you know, but he was terrible and all that. Like, there's a questioning of that. Obviously, Cromwell and his group are thinking we need to kill him. Um, The second significant issue is other kings and monarchs throughout Europe. Because if you're a monarch in Europe, you have your power because of divine right. If someone kills you, you're saying that they don't have divine right. You would not kill God's choice. And so other monarchs could possibly invade. Now, what is the reason that that probably was not going to happen? The Thirty Years' War. So by the end of 1648, they had fought a Thirty Years' War. They've done this whole thing. They're not trying to make another war with England and do it again. So, but it doesn't mean that they're not going to be frowned upon by other groups. And uh, the other issue is going to be possible internal struggle. When you kill a king... You are asking for internal struggle because you have to convince people that what you did is right. And that's not an easy sell all the time. Especially when you go to the more conservative areas of your country that are far more royalist to start with. And then you kill the king, you're going to possibly lose some of those areas. Now, When's this class end? 40? Yes. Okay, we're good. I somehow did that really fast. I'm very excited. Um, Now, we're going to go to Thomas Hobbes. You guys should have him in front of you. And if you need a highlighter, I'll have uh, have Becca come out for you and give you a highlighter. Um. So if you need a highlighter, let Becca know. She'll come around. And I am going to, uh, to podcast this part also because I need to have people that aren't here today have the ability to get this because, like I told you, uh, your close reading is going to get pushed to tomorrow night. But this document you need to include with your close reading. So you're going to upload it by taking a picture. Was there an Italian? Uh, 
That is very possible, but Hobbes' Leviathan is written mostly as a byproduct, probably, of the English Civil War. So, yeah, there, there is a lot of similarity. Like when we talked about Pope Innocent, Pope Innocent's view on man is very similar. You're right. Okay, so I'm going to have you write down a couple things, and you're going to need both the document, which we're going to mark up together, and you're also going to need your notes out because I'm also going to have you write down certain notes in your notes. So you do need both out at the same time. Hobbes is writing in what period? It's in that first line. Written in 1651. So he is writing two years after Pride's Purge and the elimination of Charles I. And during what part of the English interregnum period? The interregnum means the period between uh, kings, basically. Yeah. He's writing during the Commonwealth, which is technically democracy. Now, I, I say air quotes democracy because he just did a whole purge to get rid of people that he disagreed with. So it's not overly democratic, but, you know, kind of democratic, I guess. So here's what Hobbes has to say. And what, what Hobbes is trying to do is he's trying to, first of all, diagnose the human condition. And secondly, diagnose why government or how government can help facilitate the best version of a society. I would write that down. He is diagnosing the human condition and furthermore diagnosing how government can play a role in optimizing our relationship or society. That's his goal. Diagnose why we are here, what's going on, what our state of nature is, and secondly, how government can help us. So he says, nature hath, oh, by the way, he uses Old English, so bear with me. I'll try to convert most of it to regular English for you. Nature has made man so equal in the faculties of body and mind as that though they were found that sometimes stronger bodies or quicker minds than others uh, reckon together the difference between man and man is really not that much, as that one man can therefore claim himself any real benefit over another as uh, for or as well as he is. Now, highlight this last part of this paragraph. For as to the strength of the body, the weakest has strength enough to kill the strongest, even by secret machination or by confederacy with others that are in the same danger with himself. So on the side of this paragraph, I want you to write down Man is mostly equal. You need to qualify it because he's not saying that man is equal. He's saying man is mostly equal. Because he says, you might be stronger than someone else, but they might be smarter than you. Or maybe that the fact that someone might be stronger and smarter than you doesn't mean that you can't conspire with someone else to kill that person. I mean, think of, think of someone like Caesar, right? Caesar was considered strong he was considered powerful. He was considered intelligent. Um, but with enough conspire, uh, conspiracy around him, he's still stabbed in the back, right? So it, it, what Hobbes is saying is that I realize we're not all exactly equal, but we're equal enough to cause each other harm. And that's what he's saying, right? 
He then continues to say, and as to the faculties of the mind, men also are mostly equal than they are unequal. So even though some people are more intelligent than others, at the end of the day, their intelligence only can go so far. He then says, from this equality of ability arises equality of hope in the attaining of our ends. And therefore, if two men desire the same thing, which they cannot both have, they become enemies and in the way to their end. Endeavor to destroy or subdue one another. If one plants, sows, builds, or possesses a convenient seat, others may probably be expected to come prepared with forces united to highlight this, dispossess, deprive him, not only of the fruit of his labor, but also of his life or liberty. And then highlight this last part, so that in the state of nature, we find three principal causes of quarrel. And you're going to highlight them because he's going to view three. First, competition. Second, diffidence. Third, glory. By the first, men, may, men invade for gain. The second, for their safety. And the third, for their reputation. The first use violence to make themselves masters of other men's persons, wives, children, and cattle. The second, to defend them. The third, for trifles as a word, a smile, a different opinion. And the other, sign of undervalue, either directed in the person or reflection of the kindred, friends, nation, etc., etc. Thereby, and then highlight this last part, that during the time men live without a common power to keep them in awe, they are in that condition which is called war, and such a war is of every man against every man, state of nature will return. So what I put at the end of this paragraph is, the state of nature is war. Agree or disagree? We, I got one thumbs up. Anyone want to conveniently disagree? Or do you, are, are you okay with it? Okay. Sure. Okay, but would you, can we agree that if war is essentially conflict, right, war doesn't have to end in death, right? You can, you can have a battle that doesn't end in death. But what Hobbes is saying is that the state of nature is conflict, therefore war, and it is about competition for resources. That is what he's trying to diagnose. Do we think that is mostly accurate? I, I understand, and I, I thank you for giving, because I agree with you. Um, anyone else want to provide an argument that, it, it, that it's not? Sure. Sure. The only counter-argument to that is, does anyone know the most communist or um, groups that fought together for things? Um, to protect their own societies? Like, which groups are the most communist, meaning equal or communal-based, in our history? Like in American history? 
any history. One group that is considered by most to be relatively communal based like that are Native American tribes because they do not have the same concept of property. Property is not a singular thing. It's a communal thing in communism, meaning that if you have something like a knife and you need that knife to uh, kill a deer and gut the deer so that you can eat the food and feed the tribe, it is not my knife. It's our knife, right? The problem is if you trace this further, you realize that many native groups also were warlike because they're competing with resources with other tribes. And so what Hobbes would say is even people that tend to agree with each other will in turn still fight for resources. Um, and that's what he considers the state of nature. Yes. Yes, and, and that is kind of the argument, is that Hobbes believes that while you can have groups, families, or communities that will work together for a common good or a common belief or resources, they will also be competing with, for those resources with someone else. So, um, and that's really the point of his state of nature, right? So even in the most communal groups in history we know that competition is still there. It's not something that is absent from them. Can we at least agree on that? So what, what we want to look at here for us is if the state of nature is war and government is meant to relieve us from our most primitive concepts, which is war, how can government make sure that we don't consistently fight? And that's what he's going to get to, right? So he says in this next paragraph, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have a lot of time. He basically says, within the state of nature, you don't, and I would highlight these things as we get to, it says, in such condition, you guys see that in the next paragraph? In such condition, where every man is fighting every man, there is no place for industry, and I would just highlight that, Commodities by imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving, no, and just highlight these, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, worst of all, continual fear and dangerous life. And then you want to doubly highlight the last part of this paragraph, because this is the most important quote he probably is always quoted as saying. He says, and the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Hobbes says that in the state of nature, man's life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Unless. <laughs> That's the key to Hobbes. Unless. All right, flip to the back. He then says... In the where it says dot dot dot, if there be no power erected or not great enough for our security, every man will and may lawfully rely on his own strength and art for caution against all others. But the only way to erect a common power, as may be able to defend them from this invasion of the foreigners and injuries of one another, is to secure within them their industry by the fruits of earth, they may nourish themselves and live contentedly is to confer all their power, highlight this, and strength upon one man, upon one assembly of men that may reduce all their wills by the plurality of voices into one will. 
and therein submit their wills, one everyone to his will, and their subject uh, judgment to his judgment. This is more than consent or concord. It is actual unity of them all in one person. And then highlight where he says, I authorize, because this is going to be basically the social contract. And in the margin, you can just put social contract. I will or I authorize and give up my right of governing myself to this man or the assembly of men on this condition that you give up your rights to him and authorize all his actions in like manner. What he's now saying is this, and I'll, I'll, you can put this on the side if you want. And in your notes, uh, I would write down this slide I'm going to put up for you. He is saying that men, people, are giving up liberty so that they can have liberty. I'll say it in a different way. We are saying, I am going to give up my freedom in my state of nature so that I can, in return, get the optimal amount of freedom. What does the word optimal mean? The best version of it. So what he's saying is this. I willingly, in a social contract, gift the power of my state of nature to a king. In turn, everybody also does this. And this makes the king what? All powerful. Because he is the accumulation of all of our power in one man. And that person safeguards my freedom and gives it back to me. Does that make sense? His idea is this. It only works when it's within one man or what he calls a commonwealth of a couple of people. But once you get to democracy, Hobbes is out. Why? But that's not what that's not what we're getting to. I, I agree with you that that can be a problem. Yes. Democracy is based on conflict. Democracy in Hobbes' mind is conflict. It is the state of nature. So when you create democracy, you recreate the state of nature in your government. Therefore, reality is your government is just a replication of the state of nature, and it doesn't work. Now. What is he living through that is influencing his writing? The, the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth like the which is a disaster. Yeah. Now, the French try this also later, 120 years later, and it's a disaster. Democracy is not easy. Okay, the, Guys like Thomas Jefferson and, and our democracy is kind of an, an anomaly in history. But Jefferson even said, that the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. He believed you always had to fight for democracy, that it wasn't something that you just had and it was just easy. And later when we get to the Enlightenment, we're going to find that many of the Enlightenment thinkers believe and agree with Hobbes, but what do they think will work when it comes to democracy? How will they be different? At the bottom of this document, I'll have you write down one guy specifically. Write down um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The most French name of all time. 
I'm going to do that for you because I have to write it down. J-E-A-N, Jean. Jacques is J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. I'll say it again. J-A-C-Q-U-E-S. Jean Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau is R-O-U-S-S-E-A-U. Jean Jacques Rousseau. R O U S S E A U. Jean Jacques Rousseau. Uh, if you just know the word Rousseau, you are good enough. Now, here's what Rousseau believes. He kind of believes most of what Hobbes will say. But what Rousseau believes is you can do it in a democracy if you educate people on how to live in a democracy. And he calls that civic virtue. He believes that it can work if people are educated with civic virtue. What does that, what does that mean? What do you think civic virtue is? Yeah, the word civic means government. That's, that's where we get government from, right? And virtue is kind of your, your composition of how I'm going to relate to government. So what you have to do is train people that their civic, their civic virtue, their responsibility is to each other. And if people understand that if I walk down the street and I see a $100 bill on the street and I'm walking next to Shannon who also sees the $100 bill on the street, and Shannon wants that $100 bill, and I want that $100 bill, instead of me killing Shannon and taking the $100 bill, which would be the state of nature, instead, I go, you know what, Shannon? Do you want to go to lunch? And we both realize that we benefit from the finding of that $100 bill together. Then we are understanding what Rousseau will call the general will. You can write that down, the general will. I'm going to repeat a lot of this stuff again when we get to the Enlightenment, but I'm doing it now because when you look at Hobbes, Hobbes is saying democracy doesn't work because when you do democracy, you just recreate the state of nature. Rousseau will say democracy can work if you train people how to do it. That's what he's saying. Now, if you want an argument that democracy sometimes doesn't work, you don't have to look very far. Because our democracy is a little screwy sometimes. And just think of it this way. How much does our democracy sometimes feel like the state of nature? Pretty often. Pretty often. You read the news? Yes. I mean, if you look at Democrats and Republicans today, I guarantee you this is exactly what Thomas Hobbes is talking about. I mean, think of it like this. You, you guys know Ellen. What is this whole controversy? She sat next to George Bush in a stadium and everyone's mad at her get over it like she can't be friends with someone that she disagrees with that's what democracy is supposed to be and if we're going to continue to fight each other because you disagree with someone and you're only willing to agree with the people that you agree with you're recreating the state of nature and it doesn't work so if you're writing something down by the way that's like that level four 
similarity to something else in history. Maybe you want to write down some of what I'm just talking about right now. Because when we talk about democracy and when it should work, you have to understand that it's about compromise and it's about what should be everyone's will, the general will, not just what you want, because what you want is not democracy. That is tyranny by the majority. That's it. Democracy is compromise. So if you want an actual democracy that actually works, you have to what? Compromise. And if you don't, it won't work. And it just makes it worse. Yeah? So I have a question. Like, so a hundred dollar bill, you shared it with the lunch thing, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I didn't just take Shannon to lunch and then kill her there. That's that's not the same. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> Shannon's like, you can keep it. It's fine. Um, no. So the, the, uh, the concept that we're looking at with Hobbes is when you create democracy, he doesn't like it because he believes through his own experience. And this goes back to the allegory of the cave. I do this all year. In Hobbes's cave, democracy is awful. Right? It, it's Cromwell's democracy. Pride's purge. Get rid of people you don't like, rule by an authoritarian ruler, and end up as a dictator. How is that democratic? That's plurality of, or a majority tyranny. That's all it is. It's not, it's not democratic. So I, I think what we can learn from Hobbes is he's probably right. If your democracy kind of just melts down into the state of nature, it's not working. And sometimes you need someone to be like, hey, no, this isn't working. Um, or you need people, like Rousseau said, to be taught how to live in a democracy. And that's what I'm technically doing for you right now. The reason that public education happens in democratic systems is because that's the point of public education, is to teach people how to live in a society that's democratic. That's the point of public education. And if you're in a society that's democratic that doesn't have public education, I guarantee your democracy will fall apart even faster because it devolves back into the state of nature even quicker. So um, that's it for today, and we will move on from there uh, tomorrow. So as far as the uh, Puritan Commonwealth and what happens inside of England once we get to 1649 to 1653, is that Cromwell will start ruling with his rump parliament. And his rump parliament is mostly just people that agree with him. Uh, so make sure to have that in your notes. And then also you may want to put down that the idea that Europe is really disregarding England at this time as a legitimate anything. Because in their mind, they're thinking, you don't have a king. Uh, you have no real, you know, you got rid of divine right of kings you, but in killing your king. They're not really invading England. That's never really a good idea. Just ask anyone that's tried. Um, England's a difficult place to invade. So it, it does kind of behoove, behoove them to uh, kind of get their act together. And they will eventually. It, it is only a, a blip. The interregnum period's not really long. It's only about 10 years. And they will be just asking for a king to come back, which is kind of going to be really similar to the French Revolution. So if you are looking at trying to make connections between events, the English Civil War and the French Revolution are really good 
examples of things that have strong similarities in them. Uh, the, the people that revolt in France are very similar to the people that revolt in England. It's really that nouveau rich, that group of people that are gaining wealth through um, new means. And that money is not really translating to power yet. And so they're the ones who are really revolting. Um, what also happens whenever you have a revolution or a civil war or something like that is it brings out the radicals. So a couple of groups that are relatively radical at this time, one is called the levelers. And the levelers are uh, your early version of a libertarian um, in this period. And what that basically means is it's the most amount of freedom that you can possibly have without anarchy. That's kind of typically libertarian. Now, libertarians have adapted over time, and some libertarians are more libertarian than others. You could just look at the Paul family. Rand Paul versus Ron Paul are very different. Um, Ron is more of a true libertarian, where Rand Paul is more of a Republican libertarian uh, and definitely has a, a different take between the two. So I would just write down that they are the levelers, that's the first group, and that they are considered more uh, a libertarian. The other thing that uh, you see is an early version of a uh, communism, which is the diggers, and they're what we would consider agrarian communists. And what they wanted was to actually redistribute aristocratic land out to the average everyday people, uh, this was, would have been probably a drastic mistake because what's going to happen very quickly after this is the agricultural revolution. And it probably would have never happened uh, if they had redistributed the land because the nobles own a lot of land, but they also have a lot of capital. And the thing that you need to start any kind of significant economic shift like the agricultural revolution is a lot of capital. Um, and that's really what happens in the Industrial Revolution as well. You know, you have a lot of people with great ideas, but they need help having those ideas kind of put to action. So you need that capital infusion. And generally, poor people don't have a lot of capital. So that probably would have been, a, been an issue. But um, they were upset, most of these guys, because food prices were so high. But like I said, what's going to happen later in the coming future, very quick future, 40 or, 50, 40 or 50 years later is the agricultural revolution. By the time you get to about 1701, 02, 03, that's when you have the seed drill. People are starting to use uh, crop rotation um, and that whole process, which is going to drastically increase crop production. So Cromwell, by 1653, completely gets rid of the rump parliament, who he basically handpicked because they're impossible to deal with. And so he gets rid of them and establishes himself as Lord Protector. And at this point, and the things that I would write down is that he establishes martial law and he makes himself essentially a military dictator. And you can write down the word Lord, Lord Protector because that is what he called himself, just Lord Protector. Um, the other thing you want to put down for him is his persecution of the Irish. He is known for being relatively religiously tolerant, except for the Irish, who happen to be very Catholic. So this is going to start a trend of kind of a poor relationship between England and Ireland uh, that is going to pretty much last for a very long time, into, well into the Irish potato famine, um, which many of the Irish believe to this day was really 
spurred on and helped by the English. Um, and there's good evidence for that. Uh, there's definitely a number of times where the English just refused to trade with the Irish, even though they had food. A lot of the food that they were having is getting shipped to England. So um, the, the Irish potato famine for most of the Irish is seen as really imposed by the English. Um, and like I said, it is very uh, accurate that, that some of those things are, are true. I would say that English and Irish have actually had a bad relationship for like the past 800 years, but you're right, like Cromwell made it worse. Yes. Um, so as far as uh, the switch, once you get to the end of his rule as Lord Protector, he is going to die in 1658. His son is going to take over, and his son does not have the charisma that Oliver Cromwell had. And that will very quickly shift the English's attention uh, away from this concept of maybe we should stick Puritan, that whole thing. Because what they did was essentially create almost a Puritan version of England. And that's going to feel a lot like Calvin's Geneva. Now, it's not as crazy as Calvin's Geneva that's that pure, but it's very close. And so the English are kind of thinking, okay, the charismatic leader is gone. We're not too excited about this Puritan leadership. They are begging by 1660 for a king to come back. And so that is going to be called the, the restoration, where they restore the king. And the person that they are going to ask to come back is King Charles II. Now, I want you to write down that he is very much a much better uh, politician than his father. But the thing that he needed to make sure that he did was not do the same mistakes his father made. And the biggest mistake his father made was he would never work with parliament and he kept raising taxes. And the thing about Charles is that when you are just coming out of a Puritan rule, you kind of just have to be decent enough. And what he does here is he basically just brings the fun back. He's like, all right, these things used to be illegal. We're going to allow theaters to come back, pubs, brothels, etc., etc. All of that stuff was closed during the Puritan reign in England. We're bringing that back. And people were generally happy with that. He does go through a phase of getting rid of like de-purifying, de-purifying, de-puritanizing England. Uh, where he's kind of just shoving them out. And, and a lot of Puritans at this point are thinking, where should I go? And that forced kind of emigration out of their country, they're going to go mostly to the New World. So a lot of what will eventually become Plymouth Rock are that Puritan group that really don't have a home anymore in England. So um, the, the thing that Charles does is he stuffs his parliament full of cavaliers, which basically means royalists, and gets rid of the Puritans gets rid of the Puritan uh, New Model Army, uh, tries to, he pardons the Puritans, but then says, you got to go back to Church of England, so no more of this Puritan thing, and recreates the Act of Uniformity, which is what was created under Henry uh, and Elizabeth to make everyone Anglican, right? So that's really the goal that Charles has, is kind of reestablish a sense of order, and then... After everything feels like it's going well, what happens? They have a bit of a plague. And uh, the, the plague shows up in London in 1665. And does anyone know what gets rid of the plague? Fire. 
Uh, so <laughs> a year later, they have another natural disaster that just happens to get rid of the plague because it kills all of it. Yes. The plague. Plague. Yes, plague. Like the Black Plague. It keeps coming back. Yeah. No, no, no. So the plague every once in a while just comes back and shows up. And the thing about the plague is it generally just feeds on really unhealthy conditions, unsanitary conditions, which London had. The reason the fire got rid of it is it burned all those conditions. Um, and they had to rebuild. And when that happened, you basically got rid of the plague. Um, so the, the sad thing about the, fire, the Great London Fire is it really started within one small baker's shop. Um, that just had an oven fire and it any time back then you had a fire it would very quickly spread because of how close buildings were together it's really hard to contain fires um, and so it spread throughout uh, London you know you get all sorts of fun nursery rhymes from both the plague and from the you know London bridges and that whole thing um, but the other thing Charles does is makes it so that you have to be Anglican to be part of Parliament that's called the Test Act. And the one nice thing he did was passed habeas corpus, which makes it illegal to put someone in jail for nothing. Like you have to charge them with a crime. Didn't they already say that? The of um, they tried, but no one really followed the petition of right because the one who signed the petition of right never believed in the petition of right. So this actually makes it more official. Um, Charles also with his foreign policy keeps fighting with other people specifically the Dutch um, but that's going to be somewhat ironic because what's going to happen at the end of the Glorious War is that the Dutch and the English are going to have a bit of an alliance because William of Orange is going to come over and uh, take over with his wife Mary so we'll talk about that later the one after Charles is James II James takes over in 1685 and he's kind of the worst uh, the only person that might have been worse than him would be Charles I, and he lost his head. But James is so bad that even the people that would generally like him hated him. And that's the Tories. So generally the Tories would side with the king and be more royalist. And even they hated James II. He was seen as being too Catholic. Uh, definitely was not a very good pol politician. And within three years had effectively angered everyone to the point where they kind of run him out of town. And the reason that this is called the Glorious Revolution, which is going to happen in 1688 into 1689, is because they have a revolution that is bloodless. So it's glorious because no one dies. And they invite James II's daughter, Mary, as well as her husband, William of Orange, to become the leaders of England. And that will be called the Glorious Revolution. So what this will do, and this is what's really kind of smart, is first of all, the Dutch are one of the first countries to transition towards more of a constitutional monarchy before everyone else. And so the royal family in, in the Netherlands is the Orange family. And the Orange family is incredibly wealthy. Remember how we talked about by about 1600, the Netherlands, uh, specifically Amsterdam, was the most wealthy city in Europe. Well, many of, much of that wealth was in the Orange family. They're kind of the Medicis of the North, in a way. 
it, so much so that if you went to Europe in the past 20 years or so, it, it was probably very possible that you were probably on your cell phone on the Orange Network because the Orange family is still a very wealthy family that owns a lot of things with throughout Europe and you would probably still have a connection to that. It's also the reason that the Netherlands to this day um, wear orange when they play soccer. It's from the William of Orange family. Okay, so uh, he will come over along with Mary. They will rule together and they are very, very willing to rule with parliament. And this will create what we basically call a constitutional monarchy. Sorry for my handwriting. A constitutional monarchy. Um, the thing that gets passed very quickly is the English Bill of Rights. The English Bill of Rights will be very similar to a number of other democratic documents, things like the Declaration of Independence, as well as the Declaration of Human Rights. Um, a lot of those follow a lot of the same natural rights. Now, for the, the thing that is significantly different with the English is that they are a bit of a predecessor to this other stuff because you really haven't hit the height of the Enlightenment yet. And so much of their early natural rights will kind of lay the framework for what the Enlightenment is going to be. And then the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which is French, the Declaration of Independence, which is American, are going to kind of highlight the new changes in Enlightenment thinking and include a lot of the stuff that's in the English Bill of Rights. So the, the biggest thing that it did is it served as a model for what eventually will be the U.S. Bill of Rights. The Like I said, the French Declaration of Human Rights. And what I would write down is just what it was, the date, and that it served as a model for us. I'm going to show you what was in there. Uh, it is very similar to a lot of things that were in the Magna Carta already. But remember, the Magna Carta doesn't extend much, far, much farther than the aristocracy. So it does give what we would consider some basic human natural rights. So just to have English Bill of Rights, 1689, served as a model for the U.S. Bill of Rights. And here are some of the main provisions. King can't suspend law. Cannot interfere with justice, meaning that if someone is having a trial, he can't just be like, no, I got this. Um, you can't levy taxes or raise an army without parliament. These are all things they've been fighting for for a long time, right? Uh Freedom of speech in Parliament, that's always fun even to today. Has anyone heard British Parliament? Yeah. It's very fun. They just yell at each other. Uh, and if anyone's speaking, don't worry. Someone in the back is going to just randomly like, you're the worst. Um, and the next guy comes up, so are you. Um, they, they just kind of heckle each other. while they, it's, it's actually hilarious. Um, parliament has to be held frequently. You actually, This is very similar to habeas corpus, right? Uh, the monarch must be a Protestant. So they're like, we're done with the Catholic thing. You cannot just randomly arrest someone. And they allow for some freedom of the press and some version of religious tolerance. So all of these things will kind of lay the basis for a lot of democratic processes going forward. So for us, the things that I think we need to get from the, the English hundred, almost hundred years of about 1600 to about 1689 is that they're dealing with the fact that Elizabeth and post, it's almost like a post-Elizabeth hangover. Like, Parliament is going, wait, we used to have power. And then James is like, I hate you. And, and they go through this process of reduction of Parliament's power. 
Charles gets so bad at it that eventually Parliament will want to fight him. You have this civil war. They try to take over. They ruin things. They go to a very Puritan system. The English are like, please come back, king. We're sorry. The king comes back. Okay, you're decent. At least you're not as bad as the Puritans. Then James shows up. You're the worst. Please leave. William and Mary is a much better option. And now we have a glorious revolution. So this like 90-year period is this very kind of back forth, back forth, back forth, what do we want? And eventually they come to the point where they're like, you know what, a constitutional monarchy works for us. And I know that even today, the English have a constitutional monarchy, and I know that people are going to want to say, but the queen doesn't really do anything. I disagree with you when you say that, because the thing about the queen is that, first of all, she's been in power for a really long time. Um, And if you listen to someone like Plato and his republic, He believed that the best version of government was a philosopher king. I would argue that's very similar to someone like Elizabeth II. She's been in power for so long and has such a wealth of knowledge of how to rule that any prime minister that meets with her on a weekly basis, which they still do, is going to gain really positive knowledge from her on what you should do, how you should carry yourself, the things that you need to do to make sure that you make the right decisions. Those are things that you don't get to understand overnight. And when you're a king or a queen for a really long period of time, you have the ability to literally just understand how to do better and do government better. And I think that that's one positive of the constitutional monarchy. And yes, it's mostly formulaic. It's mostly, yes, it's it's just procedure. But at the end of the day, I think what's happened over time is that the English monarchy has kind of said, okay, parliament, sure, you guys can take the reins on more everyday matters. But when there's a big decision, the big decision to be made, I think the value of having someone there in the room that is their whole life is built around doing better for their people, that is a valuable person to have in the room. And so it just works for England. And I think if we're thinking about government systems from a, a very broad perspective, no government type is perfect. No government is one size fits all. Every government is completely dependent on the worldview and the cave that you live in. And if you're thinking about government, we can't just be like, democracy is the best because that's what works for us. I mean, you could even argue that our democracy really is built around the idea that it has to change in order to get better. Our constitution is built for change. That's why they built it that way. Uh, They they allowed systems within it so that you could edit it over time. Um, Was it more difficult to edit the constitution? Sure. But it was possible because guys like Thomas Jefferson, guys like Adams and guys that were framing these things, Hamilton and others, are thinking today we're not going to be able to legislate for someone 100 years from now because we don't. they understood that. And I think it's important to understand that just because it's working for us doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else. And there might be a better system for them. And so I kind of keep going back to the best form of government is really not just a one size fits all. It's the concept of utilitarianism. It's what works. Just use a government that works. And there's only a few countries in the world that you could kind of just throw them any government and it would work. And it's really cultures or or, uh, civilizations that have a really strong family unit that believe in very strong community systems and they don't believe that sticking out is a good thing. So like Japan. If you're a country like Japan, where your entire culture is built around fitting in and being part of a system, you could give them almost anything and they would succeed. And 
Other countries, though, that is not the case. In the United States, we are way too individualistic to do that. Our, our whole system is built around like you. It's all about you and, and how to, and that system is very different. That worldview is very different. Um, so when we look at the English, I think it's a good example of what's going to come next with the French Revolution about 100 years later. And it also is going to kind of teach us that it's not about the system. It's about what works and what is what people are going to be like, okay, this is fine. Let's move on. Um, so we'll end there and we'll get into absolutism going forward. But for now, uh, that's it on the English Civil War and that whole system. Okay.